this is Charlie Tuna from Jurassic 5 Massive, and I'm chilling on KUCI Irvine. Respect. The opinions and views expressed on this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about the show or other programs on KUCI, please log on to KUCI.org for the latest program schedule. A 21-year-old fit and healthy football player was tackled from behind while running with the ball. He lost his balance and landed on his head. This resulted in a burst fracture, dislocation of C5-C6, associated with immediate onset of complete tetraplegia. He was originally admitted to the local hospital. In the A&E department, management of his airway and respiratory compromise arising from his level of cord transection necessitated intubation and ventilation support. He had surgical stabilization of the cervical spine with bone grafting five days after injury. As attempted extubation after surgery failed, he required formal tracheostomy 10 days later. Postoperatively, he d developed chest infection and a grade three pressure sore in the sacral region. At four weeks after his accident, he was transferred to the Northwest Regional Spinal Injury Center at Southport for the overall management of his spinal cord injury. Peripheral neurological examination performed at this time confirmed this to be a complete ACA5 C5 tetraplegia. The need for ventilatory support was short and tracheostomy closed within a few days of the removal of the tracheostomy tube. Once the pressure source had healed completely, the patient was mobilized slowly and progressed well through the rehabilitation program, and there were no other medical complications during this period. At the time of discharge, 11 months after injury, the patient required partial to total assistance for all self-care activities, such as feeding, bathing, dressing, and grooming. He was managing his bladder by assisted intermittent catheterization, needing total assistance in all transfers. He was mobilizing independently in a manual wheelchair, only for short distances. Hello, hello. Welcome to KUCI 88.9 FM. 
I am DJ Broca, welcoming you to Pills, easy to swallow stories in medicine. Today, as you heard from that case report, we're going to be talking about spinal cord injuries. That unfortunate case is one of millions of spinal cord injuries that happen every year. So let's talk a little bit about um, the facts of what the spinal cord is first. And then we can talk about the injuries that result when some sort of unfortunate trauma or some other event happens that results in one of these injuries. In the end, we're going to be talking about some really exciting research that's happening right now in how to deal with this kind of uh, situation. And so uh, it'll end on hopefully a hopeful note about some of the things that medical science is doing right now and some future hope that patients who have this kind of injury might uh, expect in the future. So as we heard, that case came from a uh, 21-year-old in the UK that was published in the journal Nature. Uh, let's see, when was this? Back in 2006. But really, there are uh, 12,500 new cases of spinal cord injuries each year in the US for a total of 40 cases per million in the population. And so you have... Uh, something like, you know, uh, 337,000 people who have this kind of injury um, and are dealing with it. Now, I'm looking at the spinal cord injury facts and figures uh, sheet, which is a compilation of statistics on this kind of injury. And there's some really sobering stats. Um, you know, at initially, it just breaks it down by kind of the gender, race, um, ideology of how this cra uh, this kind of injury happens. You see a lot of car crashes that lead to this kind of injury. You see um, that mostly, apparently, 80% of spinal cord cases are in males. Um, and then the racial uh, breakdown seems kind of to mirror the population for the most part. But the neurological level at which... Um, this kind of injury happens varies from incomplete tetraplegia or um, quadriplegia, which is, you know, when you can't have function of any of your limbs to something like, which is in 45 of the cases, to 20% um, of the cases, which is complete paraplegia. So you get all sorts of um, different levels of uh, damage that occurs. So let's talk a little bit about what the spinal cord is and the, the anatomy of it that makes, um, that'll kind of contextualize why you get this kind of problem. So uh, to begin with, you know, the spinal cord is a cylinder, if you will, right, that runs all along your back. It'll connect from the base of the skull, which you can kind of feel if you feel around to where that ends, all the way down to uh, your um, the end of your vertebra, which you can kind of feel. Now, these vertebra are like armor. There's 33 of them that are kind of encasing the spinal cord inside around in this bony, um, bony armor, if you will. Uh, and this is really important because the spinal cord is so important for getting signals from your brain out to the rest of your body. This is the main means by which the brain is not only communicating with the rest of the body and sending signals through um, to control things like your arms or your legs, but also the way that sensory information from these other areas are coming up through and into the brain. And so you've got both lines of communication happening through this uh, spinal, these spinal segments. 
and where you are in the spinal cord really depend uh, directs kind of what kinds of functions are coming through. So think of it like a highway where you know the cars are coming down and they're sending these electrical signals that tell you, okay, move your wrist or move your fingers uh, up, extend them out or flex them, flex your bicep. The the cars or electrical signals that are going to your hand are going to divert out of your spinal cord and go out to the you know your arms and biceps and the different muscles in this area much earlier than other things are going to leave the spinal cord. So what do we mean by other things? Say your leg muscles and the uh, electrical signals that are controlling those. So those will divert out of your spinal cord at a much lower level. And these levels are designated by what vertebral level we're talking about. So you have the cervical area, which is high up there around your neck. But then under that, you have uh, thoracic vertebra. And then you have lumbar and sacral. And knowing where the damage has occurred, say if something has gone in and pierced through that bony armor and gotten through to the spinal cord, is something that doctors try to figure out early on because that really defines what kind of impediments you're going to have. So for example, if you have uh, an injury that's much farther down, then perhaps only your legs are going to be affected and you won't be able to move them, which is unfortunate. But what's more unfortunate is if the attack or the injury happens somewhat up there, further up, and then it could potentially even cut off the cord at a point where you don't have movement or sensation from, um, you know, your torso or even your arms. If it gets particularly high up, that could be fatal because at that point you have nerves that go in and innervate your diaphragm. And so your diaphragm's movement, the thing that will um, get your lungs to expand in and out and bring air into your body could be affected even. And at that point, if you have an injury, it could be fatal. So how well a patient does really depends on kind of where their injury is. And some are much more damaging than others. To go back to the stats for a bit, there's some really interesting ones that this uh, organization has compiled that include things like marital status and uh, jobs and education, things like this. And they give you an idea of at the time of injury, how many of the patients are single or married or divorced and how this changes through the time and i think the point of this kind of thing which i can put up on the blog later is it really gives you an idea of how lives are affected by this kind of an injury because potentially if the injury happens at a lower level then you might be able to basically handle yourself and get get along i mean you'll certainly have a disability say you won't be able to use your feet or your legs, but you'll be able to function because you can move around in a wheelchair and get get most of your things done with some adjustment. But if it's up there and your arms are also affected, then you're much more dependent on somebody else. And this takes a drastically different um, toll on your um, body and your uh, reliance on others. And so there's a lot of... Um, interest in kind of restoring function and being able to you know get back the ability to um, make 
the spine work again kind of reverse the effects of this uh, damage or if not reverse then at least try to regain function in some sort of other way now there are a lot of cases where um, people are trying stem cell therapies and things like that where they put in some cells and try to regrow the cells that have been cut off so that you can go back through and um, repair this and try to get uh, the the spinal cord to rejoin itself so that the signals can then again pass through and um, uh, send the proper signals to control the body and take sensation up to the brain. But th those are, you know, have only had limited success and not really anything in the clinic right now. So there's all this other effort too to try to use things that are called neural prostheses, which would be able to kind of go around this whole problem, go around the whole spinal cord and replicate the function of it in some way such that you don't actually need to rely on the spinal cord itself. So let's think about that for a moment. What, what would you need for this to kind of work? You'd need something such that you can, you know, take the signals from the brain interpret what's going on what the person wants to do that should show up in like the brain you know in the way that the cells in the brain are firing because you know we think the brain is connected to the mind and if somebody wants to do something has the volition to do something then that's going to show up somehow in the brain and the pattern that you see there and then you need to take that signal and you can't pass it through that same highway anymore because, you know, there's been a terrible earthquake and that, you know, highway is cut off. You need some other pathway to send that signal into the musculature that, that you want to control. And if you can manage to do that, then you'd have this system that, you know, bypasses the whole uh, spinal cord itself and uh, could potentially restore function. And so this has been an interest that people have had for a while now. And there's been various people working on this problem around the world, trying to develop some sort of system that gets around this whole issue. And there's been different types of success, you know. Um, some people have been able to uh, develop um, different kinds of prosthesis that people walk around with, that they carry some sorts of electrical stimulation that you can do very much only in the hospital setting. But what, what uh, some people did very recently and published on was really cool, um, which is that they took somebody who had this kind of very unfortunate quadriplegia that made him basically lose control of everything from his hands down. So although he was able to move his shoulders and he was able to move his elbow, he basically had no control over his wrists or his fingers nor any of the rest of his body uh, down from his arms. And so what they did for him is that they did a brain operation to take a series of electrodes and they placed it in an area of the brain that specifically encodes your motor movements and not just all your motor movements. So things you, you know, the signals for moving around, but specifically the area that's related to your hands moving. And they took a series of electrodes and they put it there to monitor the electrical activity coming from that area. And then they got this patient to sit in front of a screen and they showed him movements of a hand, this model hand, and they asked him to imagine moving his own hand in that way. 
which remember he can't do. He can't move his wrist. He can't flex it. He can't wrap his arms around a glass to lift it up or down. These are things he can't do. His hand just kind of lies flat idly there. But what the researchers can do is they can monitor his brain activity as he's imagining lifting up this glass or he's imagining you know putting this pen from this one cup into another and as they monitor this activity the researchers can take it and they can process it in various ways intelligently so that they can send in the proper relays to these other sets of electrodes that do more than monitoring they send through electrical activity to the muscles of the arm so imagine he's wearing around his arm now this um, kind of sleeve that's filled with electrodes that are giving him tiny electrical shocks and that electrical shock is enough for the muscle to basically contract in a very specific manner as um, as the researchers want and so you know you can't do this in a you could just kind of stimulate it haphazardly every one way or the other and see what kind of um, what happens as a result of that. But of course, that won't be a coordinated movement. Now, you can imagine the researchers could instead figure out what specific pattern of coordinated movements gets the arm to uh, contract as necessary to make a very behaviorally uh, relevant movement. So, for example, picking up a pen or... Um, you know, moving aside a uh, keyboard or whatever else he needs to do. But this wouldn't be volitional. So this wouldn't be something that you know that he wants to do because, you know, you didn't ask the brain. But now come put these two systems together so that you're moving the muscles, but you're moving it in a way that, you know, you've learned that the brain is telling you to, you know, move it in that direction because he was imagining doing that. And you've got this closed loop system, which works really nicely to, um, for the first time since his accident four years ago, this man is able to kind of imagine lifting his hand up and his hand actually complies. The muscles contract and release as necessary for him to go ahead and pick that cup up and uh, pour all the contents into another thing. And if you look at the videos for this, they're they're quite amazing because, you know, it, the the movements are jerky and the it's not quite very precise. But just the fact that he's imagining doing this and it works after four years of having no control over this uh, appendage is um, quite spectacular. So to quote from the study itself, um, they go on to describe this here uh, as such. In this study, for the first time, a human with quadriplegia regained volitional, functional movement through the use of intracortical, intracortically recorded signals linked to neuromuscular stimulation in real time. With use of the investigational system, our C5-C6 participant, which is just to say the area of the damage that he had, gained wrist and hand function consistent with C7's T1 level of injury which is further down and therefore less uh, uh, problematic. This improvement in function is meaningful for reducing the burden of care in patients with spinal cord injury, as most C5 and C6 patients require assistance for activities of daily living, while C7 and T1 patients can live more independently. 
Now, this isn't perfect, right? He's wearing this. Uh, he's had to get brain surgery to get these electrodes into his brain, which are monitoring him. And even with this sleeves, even with this electrode sleeve around his arm, his movements are kind of jerky and all over the place. So, you know, it's not perfect, but this thing could get better as we go along. And it's a really incredible way to bypass this um, essential uh, system and really do the same thing that it's doing. When we hear this story, it's kind of in one part amazing, but in another part really not because we do this kind of thing all the time when not confronted with this kind of injury, you know? If you want to go ahead and say pick up a CD from uh, from the shelves of CD- CDs that uh, surround me, I could do that very easily by just kind of pulling one out and I don't even have to really think about it. But on the other hand, if somebody wanted to do this uh, who had this kind of injury, there's absolutely no way before this that they could be they could even try to accomplish this kind of a task. And so this is this is kind of some sci-fi stuff right here. And you can only imagine where you could go from this, right? So if you can kind of ignore whatever problems the body may or may not have, then you can get to a point where, say, what if you have a complete spinal, um, you know, uh, transloc- uh, transection at some level, but then you retrofit the body in some sort of uh, casing that delivers the appropriate shocks and uh, electrical signals to get something moving. You could imagine some sort of like body that's even, in a sense, cyborg-like, which is that you're sending in signals and you are sending in you know the proper commands and the body responds but imagine now the body is retrofitted to be in some way more spectacular than just what our basic biology allows right so you can imagine say somebody who has paraplegia and can't use their legs now they can have something retrofitted which not only will give them back their leg function, and maybe that's too hard. Maybe our biological legs function in a way that's far too complicated to replicate. But we can replicate a leg that works just as well for getting people from point A to point B, but also is better for certain other functions, like, say, I don't know, kicking through doors or something like that. So, you know, you can imagine that can be a functionality in this new system, And you'd use the same brain and the brain could, you know, figure out how to basically control this new function while providing the basic function that already existed. So this is really exciting, I think, because not only are you getting back what you had, but you're you're giving something more, which is exciting. And I think it would it would lead to potentially some really cool abilities um, in people who, you know, are certainly in other ways would find it very difficult to to get by. I mean, um, with any such disability, you really have to adjust to the way of life, um, which is very much built for people who have normal functions, right? So, for example, I think um, just laws around uh, disability um, ensure that now you have to have things like uh, uh, 
like ramps and whatnot for people who can't walk and have wheelchairs for them to be able to go up to and access uh, different buildings. At least you see that all the way um, all throughout Irvine. Um, where there are uh, wheelchair accessible regions. Now you can imagine that you know once these prosthetics get going, you can have all sorts of new functionalities and even the ability to walk or um, say run or do other things that you didn't have before. And all will be controlled rather than by pushing yourself with your arms. You can just kind of um, get yourself moving through the power of your mind which is what you were doing before the injury anyways so it gets it gets to some um really cool you know speculating i think on the future of course i'm it's going to take a long time for that to happen um you have to realize that for example in this case where people are reading in from one area of the brain and kind of getting the arm to work it's not actually the case that the brain only sends signals from that area to the arm in a normal patient. So in a normal person who doesn't have this kind of spinal injury, they would also get signals from other areas of the brain like cerebellum and whatnot that are also equally influencing what's going on in the arm and you know properly adjusting. Not to say not not um not to mention that you also have sensory signals that should be coming in through the arms and so the person should be able to feel what they're you know grasping which this um uh patient probably cannot at this point he can only move it but he can't feel kind of uh the coolness of the glass that he's picking up or the you know the feel of the wood underneath on the table and so there's a lot of work left to do but it does make you think what are the possibilities for the future and as long as you have a brain could you basically could it be a brain in the vat controlling all sorts of other things and if this does happen what kind of what kinds of new you know what kinds of new areas of consciousness would that bring up because there's a lot of thinking about how the way we think and the manner in which we do things is highly influenced by the bodies that we inhabit and so it's not just um, it's not just uh, a brain that's acting independently, but rather it's a brain that's learned how to interact with the world given the kinds of ways in which we take in information and the kinds of ways we can we can interact with it. So for example, if we had a fifth limb, then our interaction with the world would be different and not only would that be different, but the way we would think about the world would be different. And so if you have people who are now able to um, take their body and modify it in ways after such injuries, then you can only imagine that, you know, it opens up new ways of thinking, which who knows, you know, what the implication of that is, if there is any, but you certainly could conjecture that... Um, they would be inhabiting a different realm of consciousness. Just like, you know, if somebody is disabled, the same thing goes for them. They're interacting with the world in a very different way and they probably see things in a very different way. And in the same way, you can imagine enhanced capabilities could lead to other forms of um, consciousness. So really an interesting work and uh, really hopeful that this kind of research continues on and brings people some um, much needed um 
uh, restoration after you know the traumatic injuries that uh, do occur um, every year. Uh, you've been listening to KUCI. I am DJ Broca, and the show is called Pills: Easy to Swallow Stories in Medicine. So um, you can find more about this show and others on the show blog, which is Pills on KUCI. WordPress.com, and this has been it. In the background, you've been listening to a band called Outrick, and the uh, particular album is called Tri Repite. I might be pronouncing that wrong, but something along those lines. I'll put that up along with the recording of this show. Um, have a great Tuesday. Uh, afternoon after this. Uh, thank you for listening if you have been and uh, take it easy.